Hello, and welcome again to Jetanarama Buddhist Monastery. As usual, we are back together to take another step forward on our journey to achieving ultimate happiness. A happiness that knows no bounds, a happiness that is not contained by external factors, a happiness that is not in the control of others, other events, other objects. A happiness that is ours to keep for as long as we want. Perhaps several episodes ago, or maybe right at the beginning, even you might have wondered if that was even possible. But I feel that by today, having come along this journey with us, step by step, as we unravel the workings of the mind and the mechanism through which suffering, vexation, this mental pain comes into being, by now I hope you have figured that if something comes into being through conditions, then through the cessation of those conditions, that very suffering or that very entity can be terminated. It is this understanding of cause and effect that we have been discussing, attempting to comprehend, and through our comprehension, applying into our lives to achieve our ultimate happiness. So, before we take another step forward on this journey, let us take a moment to pay homage to the fully awakened one, the Supreme Buddha. Why? Because it is he who discovered this was even possible and then shared this with all of us out of his mercy, compassion, loving-kindness, if you like, towards all sentient beings. In our homage to the Lord Buddha, you may have listened perhaps the first time, most of you will probably be familiar, with this phrase that we utter, Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. And perhaps some of you might wonder, what does that even mean? Bhante has explained to us that everything that we do in these talks, everything that we discuss, everything, every new experience is always based in logic. There's rhyme and reason behind everything we do and it is not simply through blind faith that he expects us to believe or accept anything. And the same is true here as well. These words contain the very essence of what we are actually trying to do. Namotasa means I lean towards. 
Bhagavato, Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. Three words. Bhagavato, Arahato, Samma Sambuddhasa. What this means is, I lean towards an understanding, comprehension, that all entities are conditioned. Through that understanding, I realize that this suffering that I go through is also conditioned. And once I'm able to penetrate the veil through the veil of ignorance and begin to understand the conditioned nature of suffering, I am then able to achieve a state of bliss. So this process of dividing and conquering, if you like. In other words, understanding that suffering is a conditioned entity, therefore dividing so that you begin to understand, realize and appreciate those conditions whose coming together bring suffering is this understanding that is Bhagavad Arahato meaning once you've got that understanding you are able to achieve a state of achieve a mental state that is free of cankers defilements the cankers that have kept us bound to this unending process of vexation, relief from vexation, and then the impression that this is pleasure, which again blinds us to the truth that pleasure is simply artificial and it is simply a superficial experience, nothing more substantial than that Blind to this truth, we have come through this process over and over again. We've gone through this process of the creation and experience of suffering over and over again. So once we've understood that because suffering is conditioned, it can be ceased through the cessation of the causes that bring it about, we are able to achieve a state of mind that is free of these cankers and free of these defilements. Arahato. Samma Sambuddhasa. We understand that to achieve that state, ignorance, which is the root of attachment, which brings about suffering, ignorance and attachment, it is the eradication of these two causes. One, to be more accurate, is a state, that is ignorance, and attachment, which is a condition. So these two things, their cessation allows us to achieve freedom from all suffering. And that is the meaning of Sambuddhasa, or at least Sambuddha. What we do is really take 
a pledge of allegiance, not only to the Supreme Buddha, which is, in fact, and I'm not denying that, one of the meanings of this phrase, but once you start to dig a bit deeper, you begin to realize that what the Buddha wanted for all of us, right from the day he preached this, he proclaimed the Dhamma, was for us to achieve the very same state of mental happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, unconditional happiness that he wanted for himself. It was not like of him to expect or to wish our obedience or even our worship, our respect towards him. But instead, what he wanted from us was to follow the path that he laid out for us and to achieve ultimate happiness the same way that he once did. And therefore, whenever we start one of these programs, a talk, a Dhamma discussion, whatever, anything that is related to, the, to Buddhist philosophy, you will hear that phrase being uttered. So, as a matter of fact, what we're really doing is we are renewing our pledge. To whom, you might ask? No, it's not to anyone else. It's to us, to ourselves. We take a pledge to understand the conditioned nature of suffering and to eradicate those causes. Once we have eradicated those causes, we will eradicate the result that is suffering. And through that process, achieve a state of unconditional happiness. So really, you know that the name of this series of talks is the Buddha's Guide to Ultimate Happiness, right? Well, to be honest, that is exactly the meaning of Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. It is a pledge that we take upon ourselves to follow that path, to achieve that ultimate goal. Well, now you know. I must admit that I have discussed the meaning of that phrase at I've taken it very lightly. There are so many more levels deeper you could go to analyze and bring out more profound meanings of, those, of that phrase. However, I thought perhaps it would not be fair to keep you guessing forever and wondering forever what the meaning of that phrase might be. Because, of course, I did promise to you that everything I will explain one step at a time I think if not in the first or the second episode, I will explain to you everything that we do here. Why am I in a robe? What's this? Remember? We talked about this. So, I just thought it's time you understood. What is this phrase that we utter every time we begin a talk? Now you know. Let's get on with it. Let us take a moment to pay homage to the Lord Buddha. Renew our pledge to ourselves rather than anyone else, to fulfill that path, to follow, to walk on that path and achieve ultimate happiness. Once we've done that, let's continue today's talk. Namo tassa 
Today, I thought it would be good for us to take some time to understand what it means to realize the truth, the doctrine that we have been discussing and, shall I say, its ramifications on day-to-day life. What I mean by that is you understand that through these talks you have been learning a lot about yourself, haven't you? How you work, how your mind works, how the mind seeks pleasure, how the mind goes into vexation. And once it is in that state of vexation, how the mind then pursues what it believes, what it understands is true as being the path to freeing itself from that vexation. Now, with this understanding, and as you go further in this understanding, you'll be interested in knowing and if you have been following this series diligently and applying these principles into your life, it must have started to make a profound and significant change in your life. Is that change a positive one? Is it good for you? Should that be happening? How does this affect my life, my relationships, my work, my friendships, my family life? Is it going to impact it positively or negatively? For instance, Bhante has been talking about attachment and how attachment brings us suffering. So at this point, you might it would be quite fair for you to be thinking about and for you to be start for you to have started to ask questions such as well bante if what you say is true and then we through the understanding of what you have shared with us rid the mind of attachment Are we going to stop caring about each other? What about my family? I love them a lot. I care about them. Is that going to be impacted by my understanding of what you have shared with us and my further understanding and comprehension of the philosophy that you share with me? 
Will it impact my family life negatively? Will it mean that I will no longer be able to enjoy a good relationship? Is it going to take away the fun of, from my life and going to make it rather boring and tedious? Will I be able to exert myself fully in my workplace? Will I be a good colleague? Or will I not care anymore about what happens? Because, well, as you say, I'm no longer attached. How does that work? Because if you haven't considered these questions by now, then I'm sure you will begin to soon. And if worse comes to worst, then someone else might come along who might not be very pleased about the fact that you are listening to these talks and might even suggest that if you continue to listen to these talks, these consequences may impact your life and bad things, terrible things could happen. So, before they do that, I thought perhaps I should jump in and take a moment to begin to understand what is the impact of understanding, realizing Buddhist philosophy on our lives, on our day-to-day -day lives, on our relationships, on the way we live, work and operate in society. I would like to draw your attention to one of the examples that we discussed when we were talking about the principle of cause and effect. And that was passing an exam, remember? A test. I asked you the question, how much does wanting to pass your exam help you with passing the exam? In the marking scheme, how many points have they allotted for someone's desire to pass the exam? So, for instance, if it's a math paper and you have some sums to work through, they'll give you marks for each of the sums, for the method, as well as for getting the right answer. That's quite reasonable. But what about you wanting to do the sum right? What about your wanting to pass the exam? What about your wanting or your desire to get the right answer? How much, how many marks are altered for that? Are there any marks in the marking scheme for your wanting to pass the exam? Well, you know the answer to that is simply no. You don't get any marks at all whatsoever for wanting to pass the exam. None. If you did, then you should simply be able to surrender your answer sheet with just your name on it and you should be getting some marks. Why? Well, if your desire to pass the exam 
should score you some marks. Of course you won't pass the exam. That's not how it works though, is it? You don't get any marks for that. You only get marks for what you do on the paper, for how many questions you get right, as well as the method that you have followed, if you have, of course, followed the right method. So this is what scores you. Why do I bring this example back here again? It's simply to help you understand that there are some things in this world which are necessary to get the desired result because they are the conditions which bring us the desired result. And then there are other things which are unnecessary. They are unnecessary to get the desired result. In other words, they are not part of the formula which contains the conditions that give you the expected result. So if something's unnecessary, why focus on that? Why work on that? If anything, you should work on getting rid of that, shouldn't you? Particularly if it has negative effects. Let's bring an example more close to home. Let's take your family. Now, you may be a family person, you may be a single person, but either way, I would like for you to take a moment to consider this example. I'm sure there must be someone that you care about. If you have a large family, perhaps you care a lot about a lot of them, or all of them, hopefully. If you have a small family, then still all of them. And perhaps if you live alone, I believe you still care about perhaps your parents or friends, someone who might have helped you. You care about them. Or maybe you have a pet and you care about it. Is this wrong in Buddhism? Does Buddhist philosophy forbid you to care about others? Does it? Well, if attachment is what brings us suffering and the noble truths and the noble truths teach us that suffering can be exterminated through the eradication of attachment, then if we start to work through ridding the mind of attachment, are we just going to end up not caring about other people? Our friends and our families? That would be a terrible situation, wouldn't it? If no one cared about anyone? Now, at this point, I really want you all to take an analytical view at what we're discussing here. I would like for you to take a very objective view at this. Lay it on the surgical table and take a very analytical view. What does it mean 
to care about someone. Right? Because we need to understand what it means to care about someone to decide whether our efforts to rid the mind of attachment is going to affect how we care about others. What does it mean to care about someone? When you say you care about, let's say, your parents, your spouse, your children, in the name of care, what do you really do? What are some of the things you do to show that you care about other people? Shall we make a list of some of those things? All right, let's take your parents. What are some of the things you do because you care about your parents? One, you look after them. Two, you're there to help them when they need it. If they're weak and they're feeble and they're unable to tend to themselves, you go and help them out with their chores, right? You might be there to pass time with them. Perhaps they like to have a bit of a chat from time to time, talk about things, lest they feel alone. So you'll spend time with them, talking with them. If, for instance, they are in financial hardship, being grateful for all that they've done for you, you may put aside some of your earnings for them to perhaps pay their rent or maybe to get them food, clothing, their medicines, whatever. If they're young parents and capable of looking after themselves, so say you're still a child and in their care, again, if you care for your parents, one of the things you might do is, let's say, when your parents return from work, say your dad, he returns home from work, tired, exhausted, if you care for him, what are, some, what are some of the things you could do? You could offer him a drink. You could take his bag, usher him in, ask him to take a seat, right? You could run the water in case he wishes to take a bath. You could get him his towel. You could serve him his dinner. You could ask him to put his feet up and take off his shoes to help him out? What about your mother? Perhaps she does a lot of the work around the house. You could help out. Do the dishes, the laundry, clean and sweep the house, do the shopping for her. Right? So you could help out in these ways. Well, and when it's Parents' Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, you could give them some flowers, maybe write a card, maybe write a poem. And to show that you care. Perhaps you could take them out for a meal. Maybe you could take them out for a walk. Perhaps if they like to be entertained, you could sit them down and 
share with them some stories. Talk to them about what happened at school because they just love to hear how you got on with your day. Now, these are some of the things you could do because you care for your parents. Would you agree with me? In fact, if you did these things, chances are your parents would be in no doubt that you care about them. They'd be quite pleased that they have children who love them and care about them. When your parents are ill, you could look after them and not forsake them. When they're elderly and unable to look after themselves, instead of sending them to a care home or an elder's home, perhaps you could be with them. And even if you had to put your parents into a care home, I know in some cultures that is the norm, if you had to do that, perhaps you could still go and spend time with them because that's what makes them happy. So you see, if you were to make a list of the things that make your parents happy and you did them as best you could, wouldn't your parents feel that you care about them? They would, right? If you were to make a list of the things that they wouldn't expect from you, they didn't like you to do, and you did them, now they'd think that you didn't care for them, or at least care about them. So, at the end of the day, to show that we care about people, it is to do what is right by them. Now, once you find out what it is they like from you, and if you can do as many of the things that they wish and expect from you, then that is how they would know that you care. Sometimes there may be things on there which they don't wish from you, but you still do nonetheless because, well, you feel it is your duty. So, for instance, if we switch from parents to, let's say, children, now, some children, perhaps because they're far too young to know what's best for them, might not be very happy about the fact that their parents are always on their backs about watching TV for longer than they should or playing games for longer than they should and rather they should be doing their homework or their studies or maybe getting to bed on time. These may be things that they don't really like. Yeah? Yeah, tell me about it, Bhante. I hear some of you say. Now, so if you ask your kids, what are some of the things that they like or they expect from you, most of the things on there would be fair dues. That would be reasonable. But if they'd like for you to permit them to watch as much television as they like or not do their homework or stay up late. You can't say that you care about them just by letting them do what they want. Because here is where a duty of care comes in. 
You've heard that expression before. Duty of care. Because when we talk about caring about someone, our duty towards them has a big part to play in that. What is our duty towards them? Parents have a duty towards their children. Children have a duty towards their parents. We have a duty towards our spouses, our family, our friends. When we fulfill our duties, that is caring. So, what I'm trying to show here is caring has two components to it, two constituent elements. One, doing most of the things, and I don't say all, I'm very careful with what I say here, doing most of the things, at least the things that are appropriate, things that the other person likes when you do it for them or to them, that shows that you care. Let's take, for instance, your spouse. He or she might like for you to talk to her or him lovingly. Use endearing words. Share an embrace every day before you leave for work. When you do these things, they'll know you care. Perhaps give a call when you're running late to let them know. I'm on my way, I'm stuck in traffic, or I'm still at work, it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to finish on time, so I'm going to be running late, I just want to let you know. When you inform them, when you show that they're important to you, and when you do things that they expect from you, things that make them happy, that's when they know you care about them. In their times of need, when you're there by their side, that's when they know you care about them. Now, some spouses might wish for you to remember certain things, such as their birthday or perhaps your anniversary. And if you remember them and shower them with gifts or at least a happy anniversary, darling, again, that will probably show them that you care about them because it's things that make them happy. So you see, quite a significant part of caring about someone is about doing the things that are appropriate to make them happy. To make whom happy? To make them happy. So if it makes them happy, they feel that you care about them, right? They feel that you are affectionate towards them. So that's a large part of caring. And then the other part is about duty. Whether they expect it of you or not, if you fulfill your duty, that is also caring. Now, I know there are some partners, couples, families. They're not all that keen on emotional relationship elements or the emotional elements of the relationship, but they're more interested in making sure that they fulfill their duty towards each other. 
There are some couples who are like that and they are quite happy with that. And there are others who prefer a more emotional relationship, a more intimate relationship. They are not too worried if duties get fulfilled or not. But provided that they show affection, they are happy. But to take a complete view at this, of this, it would be fair to say, partly the things that make them happy and partly your duty. So if you can fulfill these two aspects of any relationship, whether that be parents, children, spouses, friends, colleagues, at the workplace, whatever. If you can fulfill these two aspects of any connection, relationship that you have with another person or another group of people, isn't that what caring is about? My question is, what has attachment got to do with any of that? I'm giving you a moment to think about this. What has attachment got to do with any of that? Let's take an example. Your wife likes it when you bring her a bunch of red roses on your anniversary. When you do that, she feels that you care about her. Oh, and a box of chocolates as well. So, when she sees you with these two gifts, in the morning or perhaps when you return from work on your anniversary day, she's very happy. Your wife also likes it when you help at home, help with the dishes, help with the cooking, the cleaning, laundry. When you do these things, she feels that you care about her. She also likes it when you smile, not at her, but with her. She likes it when you speak with her, endearing words, like darling, honey, lovey, whatever. When you do these things, when you speak such loving words, she feels that you care about her. So really, for someone to feel that you care about them, only two things can they reasonably expect of you. What two things? Things you do or don't do physically and things you do or other things you say or don't say verbally. Don't you think so? Here's a simple task. Take a piece of paper and a pen and write down what sort of things you would expect from your wife, your children, your friend, let's say your best friend. Everyone's got a best friend, right? 
Perhaps everyone hasn't got a husband or a wife or children, but everyone's got a best friend. Take your pick, right? Get a piece of paper and a pen, pause the video here if you wish, and write down what are some of the things you expect from these people so you know that they care about you. How would you be able to say that my friend really cares about me? How do you know that? How do you know that your husband or your wife cares about you? How do you know that your children care about you? It's easier for you to do it from the receiving end. It can be more challenging from the giving end. Because however you know that people care about you, other people will probably have similar ways of determining whether you care about them. So, how do you know that other people care about you? How do you know that your friend cares about you? When you're down, you expect your friend to give you some of their time. Lend a hand. Lend a shoulder. Give a hug. Right? Share some kind words with you to help you feel better. Talk through a problem to make sure that you've got someone there to share that problem with until you're out the other end. When you're hungry, you know your wife cares about you or your husband cares about you because They'll ask you, have you eaten, darling? Are you hungry? Have you had your lunch yet? Shall I go and fix something up quickly? Oh, how lovely, you might think. When you come home from work, if she's there to give you a hug and say, hey, how's work today? Let me check your bag for you. Shall I fix you a cup of tea? Would you like some before you have your lunch, have your dinner, whatever? You know, these are things that you would say are those factors that you would use to determine whether someone cares about you. Again, I ask you the question. If by now you've made that list, and I hope you have, you may have several things on that list. Right? Work through that list and ask yourself the question. For each item on that list, is it not something that you expect of them either physically or verbally? Either physically or verbally, as in something that they do or don't do and something that they say or don't say. So, as an example, I like it when my wife, my husband, whoever, makes something that I like over the weekends. When she cooks something that I like, or maybe she'll bake a tart or something, because I, I quite like them. Or she'll give me a surprise. These are some of the things that you do, or you like that she does. Then there are the other things that you like if she didn't do. 
Say for instance, you don't like it that she switches the who are on when you're watching TV. She did it once and you told her, Hun, would you mind not doing the switching on the hua when I'm watching television because I can't listen to what's on TV? Do you mind? And she said, no, not at all. Oh, I'm so glad you told me. Next day, I'll do when you're not watching TV. So now that's one of the things that she doesn't do. What does she not do? She doesn't switch on the hua or the vacuum cleaner when you're watching TV because it's too loud, it's too noisy. That's one of the things she doesn't do. And that shows you that she cares about you, right? The fact that she doesn't do something that you don't like. So she does things that you do like and she doesn't do things you don't like. So that's the do stuff. What about the say stuff? Say for instance, your friend. You like it when your friend rings you on your birthday and says, Happy birthday. Happy birthday, mate. Or you like the way that he talks to you. Him, he makes you laugh. Those are some of the things that he would say or she would say. So now you could say, I think and I know that my friend cares about me because he makes me laugh by making jokes. These are some of the things that he says or she says that makes me happy. Then there'll be things that your friend doesn't say because you don't like for them to say that. For instance, there might be some jokes which you don't like because you feel that you're being mocked when someone says that. So say once your friend said something like that, not knowing that it hurt your feelings. And then you said, hey, mate, do you mind not saying that? Because, you know, I don't really like that. Yeah, sure. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to upset you. I'll never say something like that again. Wow. Look, he cares. He cares about me so much. I told him I didn't like him to say that. And now he's never said it ever since. So you see, now again, you've got one of those things. You know that your friend cares about you because... He doesn't say what you don't like for him to say. So what are those two categories? The do stuff and the say stuff. And then you have two subcategories the, in the do stuff. The do's and the don't do's. And in the say side you have the says and the don't says. So really you have these four things. These four things which you would use you, to determine whether someone cares about you. Do they do the things that you like for them to do? Do they not do the things that you don't like them to do? Do they say the things that you like for them to say? And do they not say the things you don't like for them to say? What has attachment got to do with any of them? I'm waving my hand, you see? How much attachment do I need to do this? <laughs> hmm? If you're listening on the podcast, you, you would know what I'm talking about, but I'm waving my hand right now at the camera, right? 
Tell me, how much attachment do I need to wave my hand? As I do. So the more attachment I have, the faster it waves or it only started waving the moment I was attached to it. And if, I've, if I'm free of attachment, then I stop waving or it slows down. What has attachment got to do with that? See, this is a do thing, isn't it? I'm doing something. I'm waving my hand. I could also not wave my hand. See, I'm not waving my hand anymore. How much attachment do I need to not wave my hand? I'm not waving my hand right now. I was earlier. No, I'm not. How much attachment do I need to either wave or not wave? So this is a do thing and this is a not do thing. Has attachment got anything to do with that? Do you need attachment to wave your hand or to not wave your hand? So you see, the do stuff or the don't do stuff or I suppose the not do stuff doesn't require attachment. This just requires intention. This is an action. An action. You don't need attachment for that. And if I, if I know that all of you like it a lot when I wave my hand, I could sit here wave my hand all day to make you happy. I'll have to stop when I'm tired, but other than that, I'll just keep on waving. I don't need attachment for that. What has attachment got to do with that? All this requires is some energy, not attachment. And it requires intention, not attachment. Of course, there has to be intention. That's why I, I intend to wave my hand and so I do. I don't intend to wave my hand and so I don't. It's intention, not attachment, that is required for this. And energy, because this is a physical activity. Now, how about the things that I say? Does that need attachment? At the start of every talk, I welcome you to our monastery. So I say, hello and welcome to Jetavanarama Buddhist Monastery. If that makes you happy, great. I can continue saying that at the start of every talk. Do I need attachment for that? Or do I need intention for that? I need to intend. Because it is through intention that I can put those words together and get it out of my mouth. But I don't, there are certain things that I don't say. Some things I wouldn't dare say. Some things I don't say. I don't shout at you. I don't yell at you. I don't swear at you. I don't do these things because I know that won't make you happy. So if there are things that don't make you happy, all I need is intention to not do them or to not say them. If there are things, if there are words that make you happy, all I need is intention to get those words out of my mouth to make you happy. Think about manners in, you know, in society, in polite 
society, we have manners. That, so there are things that we do, things that we don't do, things that we say and things that we don't say. Etiquette. There are table manners, things that you do at the table, things that you don't do. These things will differ quite a bit from culture to culture, but still, in every culture, in every civilization, there will be manners. There will be things that you say that would be polite to greet someone, and there will be things that are impolite when you greet someone. It will be quite rude. So we don't say those things. How much attachment do you need to either do or don't do, or to say or don't say? Attachment has nothing to do with this. Attachment is simply a function of the mind, as we have discussed earlier, which only brings about suffering. To care for the people that we, well, care about, you don't need attachment. You just need intention. If you intend to make them happy, that is all that is needed. It does not need attachment. Absolutely none. It's like the exam paper. To pass the exam, you just need to work through the sums. Get the method right, get the answer right. That is what, which will, that is what will score you. Full marks. Or however many marks you'll be entitled to. Your desire or your attachment to passing that exam will have nothing to do with it. So tell me, have you never been in those situations where you really didn't want to be polite to someone but you just did because it was you had to? Think about it. You know, sometimes in civilized society, you know, there are certain ways in which we have to behave, right? Because it's considered rude to you know, always show your intentions. Sometimes you have to pretend to be nice. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. I know what you're talking about, Bhante. I have to do it all day. So, you know what I'm talking about. There are some times in, when we meet people, when we greet people, when we are with people, you have to, there are things you have to say, there are things that you shouldn't say, there are things that you have to do and there are things you shouldn't be doing, right? But sometimes you do it because it's the right thing to do and you don't really want to be doing that. Like it's when, you know, when you train young kids to say thank you for things. Sometimes, you know, they just don't like to do it. I knew one kid many years ago. So there's this kid and his dad says, son, you should always say thank you to people if they give you something. He said, no, why should I do that? I don't want to say thank you. No, 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 you should. So one day, this kid, you know, he's really adamant. He just does not want to say thank you. It's just not his cup of tea. So one day this guy comes along and gives him an apple or something. And he takes the apple, looks at his dad, because he knows now that he's supposed to be saying thank you. His dad's giving him a frown. You know what you need to be saying now? And he says, no. And the dad says, you had better say thank you. The kid says, no, dad, I just don't want to say that. 
you, if you want to keep that apple, you're going to have to say thank you. So what the kid does is he turns around, returns the apple and says, you keep the apple. I am not going to say thank you. And he walks away. So, you know, sometimes you just, that's what kids are like, right? You can't get them to fake stuff. They're just the real, the genuine thing. Anyway, there are times in, when we get, you know, associate people and we, we're in social situations that you have to do things you don't really like to do, right? Admit it. Now, you see, your desire has nothing to do with the action. Sometimes you meet someone you really don't like. In fact, if you knew they were going to be there, you wouldn't even turn up, right? But now that they're there, you bumped into them. Now what do you have to do? You've got to say, hello, how are you doing? Long time no see. It's so wonderful to be seeing you. Who would have thought that we, I would have, I, I, I'd get to see you here today? You might say, with a smile on your face, right? The most perfect smile. Never seen anyone smile like that before. Right? You're pretending to be happy to have encountered them at the gathering. Now, your attachment had what to do with how you greeted them? Did you like to greet them? Did you like to see them? No. But didn't you greet them? Yes. Didn't you see them? Yes. Didn't you talk to them? Yes. But did you like to? No. Your desire had nothing to do with how you acted in front of them. So much so that you put on a pretty good show that they couldn't even tell that you were faking it all along. I think of actors, actresses, what do they do on TV, on the stage? You know, when you're watching a film and there's a bit of romance in it, that you'll see two people, they'll hug each other, kiss each other, do whatever, right? Do they really care about the other person? Really? As in, are they, are they really emotionally attached to the other person? I mean, they're acting. So, no. I mean, they shouldn't be, right? But you, as, a, as an observer, You'll watch that and go, oh, look at them so deeply in love with you. They're, they're just head over heels over each other. You'll say they're so deeply in love with each other. But are they attached to each other? No, absolutely not. Sometimes they might not even like each other, but they're acting. Because you see, to do or not to do, no, that's not the question, or to say or not to say, has nothing to do with attachment. If you care about someone, there is two things you need to do. One, do what is appropriate out of the things that they expect of you. And I emphasize appropriate. If it's not appropriate, you shouldn't be doing it. No matter how much they expect of you, or expect it of you. And secondly, what is your duty towards them? So whether they like it or not, you have to do your duty towards them. Especially if it's family. Right? You have a duty towards your children, to your parents, to your spouse and so on. You must fulfill your duty because you care. You have a duty of care. So if you do these two things, then that is, that is you caring about them. It has nothing to do with attachment.
You can care without a modicum of attachment. The best example of this is an arahant. Someone who has rid their mind of attachment. The Buddha being the first arahant in this dispensation. And from then on, there's been many, hundreds of thousands of arahants. An arahant is who we are trying to be. Someone whose mind is free entirely of attachment. See, once the mind is free of attachment, there are no expectations from other people. What if I could help you with absolutely no expectation of anything in return? Normally people would help someone expecting at least a thank you or a smile. Right? Most of the time when people help someone, they'll expect them to say thank you. So much so that if the, the other person doesn't say thank you, then chances are, hey, look at that guy, help the guy, he doesn't even want to say thank you. Gosh, I'm going to help that person again, someone might say. So you helped, but with an expectation of a thank you. Even a thank you, you needed. Or a smile. I helped the guy, I gave him some food, he didn't even smile at me. What's he up to? What's wrong with him? Gosh, I only tried to help. You could have just smiled. So really, what are you expecting? You expect a smile. So, this is not altruistic. Rather, you're expecting something in return. I'm not saying that's bad or as evil. I'm just saying... Most of the time, I'd say even 99% of the time, when someone does something for someone else, they'll expect something in return, however big or small that might be. But imagine if you were entirely free of attachment, meaning there is nothing you are attached to, meaning there is nothing you expect, because there are no vexations that torment you, no suffering in your mind, therefore, you are not someone who seeks pleasure. Why? Well, when, when someone's happy, they don't seek pleasure. Only those who are unhappy seek pleasure. You know the distinction and the difference between happiness and pleasure, right? We've talked about this before. Only someone who is unhappy seeks pleasure, or not entirely happy seeks pleasure. Someone who is entirely happy, someone who is entirely content, does not seek pleasure. And it is only those pleasure seekers, those who seek pleasure, expect things from other people, from the outside world, for things to go according to their expectations. And when they do, they are relieved of that vexation, you know the drill, and they feel pleasure. And when they don't, the expectation remains and therefore they stress out. They are disappointed. We've talked about disappointed. It's when an appointment is dissed. Or an appointment is dissed. You have an appointment, an expectation, and that is dissed. You do disappointment. So you see, you can be the most caring person in the entire world without the tiniest bit of attachment. Attachment has nothing to do with caring. So then tell me, would you be a worse or better husband if you were free of attachment? 
A husband who has attachment in his mind has expectations, meaning vexations, meaning there are things that he expects from the other person to make him happy. So in other words, he'll do things that will bring him, things that he expects to make him happy. But someone, a husband who has no attachment, has nothing to expect from the other person, his wife. He'll help her. He'll show her care, love, affection, expecting absolutely nothing in return. It will matter not to him that his wife does not cook for him, or clean, or do the dishes, or even greet him when he returns home from work. He'll still do whatever makes her happy. So, does that make him a worse husband or a better husband? You be the judge of that. And the same goes for every other relationship. Would you be a better mother? Or a worse mother? Would you be a worse father or a better father? If you were a mother or a father without attachment, you'd be able to do things without expecting anything in return. Not even a thank you. You don't even expect a smile in return. You'll still do what is right for the other person. Things the other person, things that would make the other person happy and they have to be appropriate and your duty of care. Because that is how you show that you care. So, if Buddhist philosophy is about suffering and the cause for that suffering being attachment and that attachment, if eradicated, can cease suffering and then there's a path to the cessation of that suffering or to the cessation of the cause of suffering. So it talks about how to rid the mind of attachment. What do you see is the problem? How do you think Buddhist philosophy can ever have a negative effect on your social standing, your relationships with other people. You, how much you care about other people. If anything, folks, through your realization of the Dhamma, through your contemplation and your following of this path and working through ridding the mind of attachment, you will only become a better member of your family. You will become a better husband, a better wife, You'll become a better mother or a better father. You'll become a better son, a better daughter, a better colleague, a better brother, a better sister. Why? Because you'll be able to do what matters to other people, to the other people, to the, to the important people in your life, without expecting anything in return. Because expectation is always based in attachment. When you do things because you expect them, now they have something to lose. The other person has something to lose because if they don't give you in return what you want, pretty soon what they receive from you is also going to stop. I'm not saying always, but most of the time. Because people who are attached have expectations and then they do things for other people expecting their expectations to be met. 
it's a give and take relationship. You scratch my back, I scratch yours, that kind of thing. But what if you didn't have a back that needed to be scratched? You could just scratch the other person's back, help them out, expecting nothing in return. So you see, Buddhist philosophy, its understanding, its comprehension, following the path that Buddha taught, following the Buddha's guide to happiness, can only make you a more caring person, not someone who doesn't care. Hopefully, I've been able to give you some insight into a problem that you may have had already or maybe something that you were bound to have in the future. The same goes in the workplace as well. Because in the workplace, you have a duty to fulfill. If you could fulfill your duty with no expectation in return, you will do a better job. Because you will give 100% of yourself without any reservations. That will make you a better colleague. That will make you a better member of staff, a better worker. Ridding the mind of expectation will only rid the mind of suffering, of vexation. It will not make you a less caring person. If anything, it will make you a more caring person. Just as I'm doing with you today. I do this with you. I give you these talks because I care. All along the time, all along the way, I'm working to rid the, my, my mind of attachment. The more I rid my mind of attachment, the more I'll be sharing these with you. The more time I can be giving you to help you out. Because I care. Right. So, with that, I will leave you for today. Take a moment to think about some of the ideas that we talked about. Do you agree with them or do you disagree? Do you agree with some of them? Perhaps there are some ideas that you are struggling to make sense of. Give it another thought. Always be open-minded and considerate. Looking forward to speak to you again next week. Before we conclude, let's take a moment to transfer merits that we have all acquired. Okay, so let's take a moment then to transfer merits that we have acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting Pirit, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching, and with immense gratitude let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasikas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha, and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand, and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to all the members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to our teachers and to all the other monks resident at this monastery, as well as all the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them, and may through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the waffle plane, 
redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane. Mates of the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those of you who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. Mates with the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers, fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers, employees, and to all those who have helped and supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, Fulfill the Noble Eightfold Path and attain the Supreme Bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. Let us also transmit to the Devas and Brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Samudha Sasana. Let us also transmit to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may to the power of these merits, they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the Noble Eightfold Path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transmit to our ancestors who have predeceased us and to all those who have been our families, friends and acquaintances in this long journey in samsara. Let us take a moment to help to transfer these merits to all those who have helped and supported us and assisted us in every way they could. Let us also transfer merits to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation. And may all those who have lost their lives in the war be their friend or for rejoicing the merits we have acquired today. Let us also transmit to all those who have lost their lives in natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides and the pandemics, including the most recent and prevailing one, reminding ourselves that among them will, among, will be those who have been family and friends to us in this long journey in Sansara. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to them. May with the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plane, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Finally, let us all resolve that may to the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of Arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may to the power of all the merits we have acquired today, you and I, and everyone who has helped make this program a success, become an Arahatun Vahanse or an Arahateranin Vahanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And on that note, we will conclude today's talk. Looking forward to speak to you again next week. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all.